In August, I had the true and great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sidney McDonald Baker. I cannot think of anyone that could best kick off P5 protocols than this sage of pure human, medical, and life wisdom. His background in evolution to his current thinking, which, by the way, despite being near 80, is still evolving, ever learning, reminds me of Charlie Munger, another sage of life and worldly wisdom. When you listen to his history, it is immediately evident that he didn't take a linear approach to his education, nor his life. What continues to make him so fascinating to me is his desire to upset his own apple cart and seek out new approaches, openly accepting that someone else may have a better way. And this comes from one of the godfathers of integrative medicine. To me, a valuable lesson in humility. But then again, great people provide lessons by their behavior and actions, i.e. by example. Whether you're listening for direct medical advice on autoimmune conditions or autism, or whether you want to understand how to develop or refine your approach to your own or your patient's or loved one's path through health, or even if you're in business or need life advice, the parallels between how he sees medicine and life can be of great value. I have now listened to this recording several times more than I needed to get the show notes done. I could go on in my praise, but instead of me telling you, I think his words will show you, which of course is a better approach to teaching and learning. If you're looking for protocols or what I would term adaptable protocols for health, there are some in the latter half of this interview. However, the direction we took was more broad, but also sets the stage for how any one person can manage any illness or approach to peak health, including what he or she should demand from her practitioner or from him or herself. Dr. Sid has that sparkle in his eye that patels of his kindness, passion, and curiosity and desire to get his patients healthy. To have done everything he can for his patients. Despite his soft-spokenness in this podcast, I am sure you will sense that sparkle and strength. And with that, here is Dr. Sidney Baker. I am sitting here with Sid Baker, who is uh, a doctor for a very long time, who has seen uh, an amazing array of, of cases and healed an inordinate number of, of people over, over his many decades in practice. I feel very blessed. I'm also a patient after first trying to see him uh, over 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, but with that, I would love you, Dr. Baker, to um, talk a little bit about your background and, and how you got here and, and your approach. Uh, and where we'll go with this, like with uh, all the P5 protocols uh, podcasts, is getting into how you came up with your current approach, how it has evolved, and and how it can apply to people in the real world now. Between my third and fourth Yale as an undergraduate student at Yale University, a history major, I decided to take a year off. In those days, you couldn't take a year off unless you had a nervous breakdown. But I uh, happened to have connections at Yale. My uncle was a history professor, and 
the president of Yale was sort of Uncle Whit to me, and the chaplain of Yale is, was Uncle Sid, after whom I was named. So I could decide I wanted to take a year off without having a nervous breakdown, but it was just because I knew I was going to be going to medical school, which would be a long tunnel, and I thought maybe getting out to see the watery part of the world a bit would be good for my development. As it happened, I ended up spending a year traveling in the Far East, studying history of art and architecture with a, a, my Yale professor who happened to be going on a Fulbright to do that, and I tagged along. During the process of that trip, I ran into two old ladies at a little bungalow place in Indonesia, and they said, you know, young man, after they identified who I was traveling with this Chinese guy, this young American in Indonesia, which didn't like Chinese people or Americans at that time, they said, you should go see Dr. Edgar Miller in Kathmandu. So I wrote it down in my little book, and I started writing little letters to Dr. Miller to see if I could come and spend some time with him. He never wrote back. I ended up, after, after we, Nelson, my Dr. Wu, my professor, went back to Japan, uh, and I had three months now to spend on my own. And I went up to Kathmandu, and I sat on his doorstep until he came back to the hospital where he was working and from which he'd been on sort of a tour in the valley of Kathmandu. He took me under his wing and we saw patients together. This is my first experience in medicine. I really didn't know any doctors coming up. And he would turn to me after each patient. He'd say, Sidney, have we done everything we can for this patient? He said it regularly, not in a funny way. It just sort of came out of him. Uh, and mind you, we were seeing people with acute illness, uh, something, an abscess or a broken this or some, some infection or something, and some people with chronic illness. But the question was, Sydney, have we done everything we can for this patient? When I went to medical school, after finishing my last year at Yale and then going to Yale Medical School, the question was, have we done everything we can for this disease? I perceived in that, since I'd already, my heart had been touched by Dr. Miller's question, it was already embedded in me, and I realized there was a dissonance between treating this patient and this disease. A patient a human being, an individual, is an individual. Disease is something that we form ideas about it, and it's really, an, a disease is an idea, it's not a thing. Although people speak about diseases as if they're things that attack you, that's really not the right way to think about a disease, that it's a thing. It's a, it's a certain thing that people have in common that get them a certain kind of attention from doctors because of the commonalities between people. Well, when it comes to chronic illness, which is the subject of our conversation pretty much, the commonalities sometimes crowd out the things that make us each an individual. Individuality is a absolutely fundamental mm, idea or reality of nature in living things. Every living thing is, is unique. Now, obviously, all the blades of grass uh, share pretty common properties, and one blade of grass is very much like the other. But when it comes to uh, especially individuals who are 
now chronically ill, their differences become quite important. And when you ignore the differences between people and just go for what they have in common that gives them a name on their problem, such as heart disease or ulcerative colitis or depression or schizophrenia or autism, on and on and on. If you're focusing on the name instead of the individual, you can go in a bad way by way of ignoring certain answers to questions that one would ask about individuals as opposed to questions about the disease. Now, there are two questions that we ask, and these are these are part of what you might call fundamental concepts underneath what's now known as functional medicine or integrative medicine. And there are two really simple questions. One is, does this person have an unmet special need to get something which, if provided, would favor nature's strong impulse toward healing. Nature does the healing, and healing is what we're trying to support. So the first question is, can you support healing by finding something that a person has some special need for that's greater than, you know, different from the average, which if provided would favor nature's impulse toward healing? An example, there's lots of examples, but maybe the person, and this is a common example, maybe the person has a, an unmet need to get vitamin D. So you find out that the person has a, a very low level of vitamin D in their blood, and you give them the vitamin D, and bingo, things start working well. And when I say working well, it means healing takes place. This wonderful, mysterious thing that living things do called healing. There's no drug that I know of that can do healing. So we're talking about things that are generally not drugs, but are generally things that are nutrients we speak of and things that we need to get. Now, nutrients are not the only things. Um, there are other things we have unmet special needs for sometimes. One is love, right? Some people wait more one kind of love or another. But love is certainly something that one would include in this, this sort of paradigm that we're talking about. And then um, rhythm is another thing that we sometimes get out of whack. And some people have a special need to um, be um, asleep at night and awake during the day, <laughs> or to uh, integrate the rhythms of their body like breathing and um, heart rate and all these other rhythms that constitute the music of, of being alive. So it's not just about taking vitamin pills, but um, but in a simple way, you think with an unmet special need, call it a deficiency, but uh, if it's addressed, that will help the organism uh, get better. So then the second question is, does this person have an unmet special need to avoid or be rid of something which, if taken care of, would favor nature's strong impulse toward healing. Now, what kind of things 
might need to be avoided? Well, toxins, clearly. Things in the environment that are just simply bad for people. And as that happens, we live in an environment nowadays uh, that is quite full of toxins. I think there's a general consensus among smart people that toxins account for the major burden of chronic illness in Western society. Now, the word toxin means a poison, but some toxins are harder on certain people than others. If you go and look at a place where people are exposed, say, to a mercury, something that's in the workplace or in the... Um, some process that they're exposed to mercury, it turns out that some people are much more sensitive to mercury than others. Not that mercury is good for anybody, but there's a, a really broad range that makes mercury seem more like an allergen to some people because they're so sensitive to it, whereas other people can withstand it more. Moreover, they can express their toxicity from say, mercury, in ways that are very different one person to another. So it doesn't always add up to the same thing. And mercury sensitivity doesn't get everybody uh, out of joint in the same way. And just a couple of hundred years ago in our own culture here, doctors gave teething powders to babies because they, they were, they were uh, irritable because of what they perceived to be their problem with teething. And they rubbed mercury stuff on their teeth, which, of course, they swallowed. And the whole generations of babies were, were made toxic. And whole diseases developed because of mercury poisoning. And people then identified the diseases and came up with treatment for them that had nothing to do with stopping the mercury. So, but in, a, in the modern context, there's still, uh, there's still an exposure to mercury that's going on. And it, and it is something to consider in anybody's illness, same thing with lead, and Lord knows there's uh, hundreds of thousands of different novel toxins, none of which have been assessed in terms of their toxicity in general, much less their particular toxicity in one person versus another. Now, I use the word allergen. So in this avoid side of my, my, uh, my question, get, and, get or avoid, in the, in the avoid side, there's things we call allergens. So for some people, uh, avoiding the smallest amount of, uh, say, gluten in bread um, is, uh, 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 produces a miracle of recovery from a very complex illness. And it could be a complex illness that is maybe may named very differently in different people, maybe come out in different ways. So in, the, in, the, in, in my mind, in confronting somebody with a um, a uh, chronic illness, uh, the conversation begins with saying, uh, the focus here in the detective work we're doing is on you as an individual. Uh, it, of course, we, we understand that a name has been given to your problem, but we are departing from the way I was trained, uh, which was what I call name it, blame it, tame it, prescription pad medicine. That is, you say, oh, well, the name of your thing is migraine, headaches. And uh, the thing we give for that is migraine medicines. 
and we think that will tame the problem, and then um, we write, write, write prescriptions for it. And that's very different from trying to figure out if your migraine headaches are caused by allergy to cheese or <laughs> Lord knows what else. So the beginning of my um, experience as a doctor began from Dr. Miller in Kathmandu with a simple question, Sydney, have we done everything we can for this patient? And I survived medical school with that question in mind, along with the you know, conventional ways of looking at illness. Well, you... you, you not only survive medical school, you thrived. So maybe just go through that early stage from medical school, residency, it's into your professional career a little, right. just to give the listeners some more background. Well, I, I, I spent my four years as a medical student. I didn't take a year off then. Uh, I'd already had my year off, but I did well in medical school. I, I won the prizes that they give for the best thesis and things like that. That is, at, at Yale, you had to do a, a regular research project with a, a thesis, uh, like a PhD, to get a medical degree. And they gave prizes for that, and I got, got that one. And um, so then, uh, and I had um, uh, been very much influenced by a member of the Yale faculty, uh, Milton Sen, who was a psychiatrist, head of the Yale Child Study Center, and um, also a he was, uh, I met him when I was an undergraduate because he was a, a fellow of, Berk, of uh, Davenport College when I was at Yale, which is divided up in these residential colleges. And um, so I thought pediatrics would be a good place to start. I like children and they seem to like me. And then I, so I did pediatric uh, residency, but um, I, I realized I was especially interested in the newborns, and I thought it might be good to find out more about where babies came from. So I took, they let me take uh, six months away from Yale to go across town and do a mini residency in obstetrics. So I got a little bit of that under my belt. And then when I graduated and finished my training, um, it um, occurred to me that. Um, I should take some time off as well. Uh, Kennedy had been killed as a, when he was president, and I thought, well, uh, he had had, well, somebody came up with the idea of the Peace Corps, which he helped get started, so I thought, well, that'd be something good for me to do. So I took two years out now, <laughs> in the middle of my residency. Again, not a fashionable thing to do, but I got away with it because... Um, I guess people would give me a little bit of extra room. And I signed up for the Peace Corps. I wanted to go back to Nepal, but there wasn't any place there for me. I spoke French, so I was sent to French-speaking Africa and spent two years there. And what with going around the Far East and with Africa, I, had a, I sort of broadened my view about the ways people go about healing. Um, and Africa, I not only got a little bit of sense of the way Africans go about healing in the traditional sense, as I did in Japan and Southeast Asia and India when I was traveling there, but also uh, medicine that the French French people did, which was different from American medicine. Um, and I uh, had experiences there which um, naturally touched me deeply about certain things. Number one, 
I saw thousands of people in Chad, which is where I was stationed. Beautiful people, just people with beautiful teeth, beautiful skin, beautiful hair, and um, and healthy as they could be. Naturally, I saw some people who were very ill in certain ways, mostly from either trauma or infectious disease, but I never saw anybody with an allergy who was living the, the old-fashioned way. Uh, and Chad was a very old-fashioned country. Most people lived in villages, as they'd been doing for many, many, many years. So it was nothing civilized going on for most people that I saw. And um, I never saw anybody with allergies, which are a very common part of what goes on in our country. Just turn on the TV and you see how many things are for allergies. <laughs> and if you see, you go there and you don't see anybody with hives or asthma or things like that, you think, well, this is funny that they don't have these problems. And I didn't see anybody with what we call autoimmune diseases, which is inflammation, which is just like an allergy, except it's to something in your own body that you don't it doesn't agree with you. And so autoimmunity and allergy are two sides of the same coin, which is what we call loss of tolerance, that you become intolerant of things you should be able to tolerate. We can come back to that later, but the the idea is, in my experience during the Peace Corps, it, it again, it broadened my mind a bit about problem solving, uh, and also it raised the question of how come you could have a whole country full of relatively, or very, very poor people, Chad was one of the poorest countries in the world, where the people living out in the countryside were magnificently healthy, and yet they did have a quite a heavy burden of things that um, we we think of as yucky, yucky germs. Not to not to uh, glorify the widespread uh, problems with malaria and uh, schistosomiasis and all kinds of other things, including intestinal parasites, but really. Um, it was stunning to see how healthy people, the average person, looked. And a, a team of top-notch scientists came through Chad while I was there from Johns Hopkins, one of the prominent medical centers in the world. And they were running around collecting blood and stories from people in villages all over Chad. And they came away with the impression that basically everybody in the village had malaria, right? <laughs> You know, they lined up everybody in a little village of maybe 200 people and they got all their blood in a very systematic way or enough to be able to make it sure it was a representative sample of the whole village. And basically everybody had a malaria parasite in their blood at the time. And they were running around looking fine. Gave me a little bit of different perspective on where you draw the line between, you know, what's really troublesome or not. Now, as I say, I'm not saying that we should all have malaria to be healthy, but I'm saying that in that particular population, here they had a burden of certain kinds of germs living in their body, but they didn't, didn't have a lot of chronic illnesses that we have. And this was something that was noticed by missionary doctors and others who had been there for many years. They said, oh, the Africans, they never have this, this, and this, and this, beginning with appendicitis or gallbladder disease or all kinds of other things like that. So it turns out over the years, just to fast forward quickly, uh, it became consensus among the medical community that um, people living in modern Western countries like the United States 
uh, have these chronic illnesses of allergies and autoimmune disease, and it seems to be, it is not, just seems to be, but it is scientifically true that the incidence of these diseases is correlates with the lack of certain germs that live in the digestive tract. Uh, that in, 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 in medical school they would teach me, teach me to call parasites. And um, so then that raises the question, if you have a person with a chronic illness that has to do with the loss of tolerance in the immune system, then what can you do to restore tolerance uh, to people? And the word restore is a very important word in my medical mind because restoration is generally uh, a friendly act toward any particular system. And tolerance is a part of systems that are very important, whether we're talking about mechanical systems, political systems, social systems, educational systems. Tolerance is a prime virtue or prime property of such a system. The other the other good thing is is ta- as a, is diversity, having lots of different parts, and this will come come back if we talk about the digestive system and and the very th- things that have to do with chronic illness. So that part of my development as a Peace Corps volunteer was very important. I came back from from that to be chief resident in pediatrics at Yale. Spent a year doing that. Then I got a position as a full time assistant professor of medical computer science uh, at Yale um, as the first one of the, one of the first medical computer science departments in the medical schools in the country. The dean, Dr. Jean, uh, Redlick at, at Yale, wanted to do something about computers that was more than young number crunching. It was about something that would be good for helping patients and doctors understand about how they... Um, how, how they can see their, themselves through the eyes of a uh, system that organizes and helps them reveal patterns in their health. So I did that for a couple of years, and I continued with the appointment in that department of medical computer sciences for a decade or so. But after two years, I realized that um, medical information comes from patients, <laughs> and maybe I should go and take care of patients directly. And, and, and so they start, They were starting a new prepaid health plan, not-for-profit in New Haven at the time. And I got in the ground floor as a local, as a, as a family doctor. There was, around Yale, there were not many, there were, Yale doesn't produce family doctors, they produce specialists. But the community health plan had people from the community who wanted a family doctor. And so as we started this, as they st- some, the group that started this whole thing, it was not doctors who started it, as, when they started it, the, the people who were enrolling in this, to, you know, for it's kind of an insurance prepaid thing, um, they made it clear that what they wanted was a family doctor. And so I had training in obstetrics and gynecology and pediatrics, and I'd been around a bit. And so I said, oh, that's me, I want to be the family doctor. So I did that for seven years. And um, so then I began to hear stories from my patients that were different from things I'd learned in medical school, and we can talk about those stories. So, okay, so, and, and that took you to what year? Somewhere in the 1970s? That took me to 1977 when someone asked me to be director of the Gassell Institute in New Haven, Connecticut 
which was a, a, a not-for-profit organization uh, based on the work of Arnold Gasell, who had been head of the Yale Child Study Center and really made it famous over the world for his early studies of movies and so on, tracking the, 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 the different stages of development in children. Interesting, uh, when you hear about child development um, you, and people and criticisms of Dr. Cassell's work, they say, oh, Dr. Cassell, he said, all, all children of a certain age have to do exactly this, which was exactly not what he was talking about. He was talking about diversity and differences and uh, how the spread of, 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 uh, of time that it takes for children to learn to speak or to touch their thumb and forefinger together or to point or to various developmental things. It was the differences that attracted his interest. But of course, when you chart this out, you make a, a little chart of a time zone during which, say, from you know eight months to um, 14 months when children learn to talk, and you know, make meaningful sounds, and um, it centers around a year or so. But uh, but uh, people get the idea that he was establishing a norm where everybody is supposed to, if they're normal, they're supposed to be at doing it at a such and such a time. Which was he, he was interested in diversity and and differences. But sometimes when scientists do things, the message comes out backwards. So I did that for a number of years. Um, and then, um, but that had some administrative tasks to it and raising money and stuff to keep the place alive. And once that was taken care of, I thought it's time for me to go on and be a regular doctor. So I went on doing that and became more involved in writing books, um, and, um, and teaching and becoming involved in the growth eventually of what became, in, in, uh, functional medicine which was started by our leader, Jeffrey Bland, um, who is a PhD, a brilliant man, who uh, got functional medicine on, on the table. And I helped with uh, some of the, uh, I helped to lay down some of the basic principles, which was this get and avoid thing. Very simple way of thinking. But, um, but the difference between get and avoid versus name it, blame it, tame it medicine is a big difference. And uh, so that that has become part of my job since then is teaching other doctors to to try to open their minds with respect to chronic illness about um, about those sorts of things. Another basic principle is we call the tax rules. That's not T A X. It's the T A C K S tax rules. And one of the first tax rule is if you're sitting on a tack, it takes a lot of aspirin to make it feel good. Okay, <laughs> and um, the second tax rule is um, um, if you're sitting on two tax, removing one does not result in a 50% improvement. <laughs> okay, so uh, those, if you think about it, those can be mined in certain ways to help us steer our way uh, in this uh, landscape of what we call functional or integrative medicine. So, okay, so... You take the basic approach, which starts with a focus on the patient. And in most cases uh, with chronic disease, it's still a clinical diagnosis, right? E even if there's inflammatory markers, et cetera. So you start with the patient and then you start knocking down uh, 
what you may have in you that you don't want and that maybe, you know, you, you either need to get rid of in various different ways or the lack of nutrients or other things that will help your system function. And again, I'm looking at this protocol as this stage of, of any protocol is what is your approach and how do you see the world? And then once you have that, getting into some specifics, but again, as we discussed before we started recording, you're, you're not a big fan of the word because it implies one size fits all. And if you follow this protocol, you will be better as opposed to this protocol may work for you or there may be another protocol that may get you there. Um, my goal over time uh, especially with the exponential increase in the quality of different tests, especially non-invasive tests, um, and ones that you can minister increasingly at home over the next two, five, ten years, is that you'll be able to constantly monitor uh, with with uh, low interference in your daily life to to constantly tweak what you're doing. So that is the ultimate goal of where this podcast is going. And taking your approach, I think, is is critical. I do think that a lot of doctors avoid it because they can't, they, they, they see a disease because that's A, what they learned. It's too difficult to change. It's too risky because of being sued if you're wrong. And if you follow standards, you know, it's the old saying, if you hired the guy from Harvard, you weren't going to get fired for doing that, even if he wasn't great. Because oh, he went to Harvard, right? Yes. Um, so... The, the risk of common sense is not so much that it doesn't work, that it, but that it offends another professional who sees it as what we call a heresy. Uh, and, you know, this comes from our traditions and religion, where if you step outside the, the, uh, the, the narrow path... Uh, you can get yourself seriously in trouble, and of course, even in the in the um, history of our great republic, there have been people who were uh, hung or burned at the stake, or I don't know what, for you know being heretics. And the heresy is usually um, a concept that comes within the the walls of uh, what we call an orthodox or a very well laid out system of thinking. And the system of thinking in the medical field uh, is confined in ways that are fine when you're dealing with acute illness. If if you if you cut your wrist on a on a, a barbed wire and you need to get it stitched up, you don't need to get a lot of fancy talk about that. You get the stitches and you put them in. Um, and if you have pneumonia and it's uh, it's caused by a, a germ. The pneumococcal germ, and uh, at least at first going, you're going to treat it with some medicines that kill that germ. Uh, and you name it and say, okay, we did a chest x-ray, it's pneumonia, we know what it is, this is the treatment, no doubt about it, good. So I'm not arguing about that at all. And that is the foundation of, of our medicine. But the shift between acute illness and chronic illness as the, the work the daily work of doctors has been enormous in the last hundred years. And during that time, our language has not changed much to accommodate for that shift. So now somebody walks in and says, oh, you have bad joint pain and swelling. 
uh, and we call that rheumatoid arthritis. Or you have um, bloody diarrhea and cramps in your stomach, and when you look up up inside your intestine with a expensive flashlight, and it's, it's, it's inflamed in a certain way. We call that ulcerative colitis. Now we know what you have. And the recipe for that is X, Y, or Z. But if the recipe is something that suppresses your immune system, that's not going to do what I referred to before, which is to uh, enhance the body's capacity to heal. Instead, it interferes with certain things that are usually associated with healing, but which makes your immune system work less well, but therefore you have less inflammation and you feel better, but it's, but it's overall not, not a bargain. Now, maybe first time around, but once it doesn't, doesn't work and it doesn't work, then it's time to really think a different way, which is, gee, maybe there's something that's bothering your joints or your intestine, which if you take it out of your body, or if there's something that you need that you're not getting enough of, like vitamin D or whatever, and you do that, then what happens is your body heals because it's, waiting, it's been waiting for the raw materials to, to either uh, help with the, the biochemistry or to getting, waiting for somebody to get out something that's been irritating to you. And the thing is that these elements are different from person to person. So not everybody with rheumatoid arthritis or or ulcerative colitis, is sensitive to the same things that need to be gotten rid of or might have the same unmet need for certain nutrients that would help their immune system work better. So it has to do with treating people as individuals. And there's another, there's another principle involved in this. We've talked about the principle of, of, of balance here, and we've talked about the principle of individuality, Individuality is like everybody's different, so it's the, the person you're treating, not the disease, and the balance is get or avoid to, as a find a path toward healing. And the third is control. And the bad thing about the, 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 the orthodox medicine that I was taught in medical school is that by putting a name on the problem, um, number one, you um, you give the patient momentarily a sense of control because like, oh God, we didn't know. So a child comes in to be evaluated because he's having trouble talking and he's flapping his hands and he's doing all sorts of crazy things. And he says, well, we know what it is. This is autism. Their kid is autistic. And for a moment, they said, oh, we're so relieved to know we didn't know what it was. But then, um, a few months down the trail, um, then, depending on what decade we're talking about, <laughs> the explanation of why the person got this way, the child got this way, um, tends to remove control from the person because it's way beyond them. It's... Uh, uh, it, 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 it's, um, it's very important that the medical process be collaborative between the patient and the doctor. It's not just do what the doctor says, here, take these pills. But it's like, well, let's find out really what's wrong. And that's where you start the get and avoid thing. But 
if it's just like it's this caused by art is the name of autism and is the cause is autism um, that that really um, is not a good way of thinking not just for practical purposes but also for the purpose of not removing a sense of control from the parents who are going to be should be partners in the process of finding out what's wrong and uh, the detective work that is needed uh, to do that is one that engages everyone they, everybody has to understand what the what the what the thinking is and and when people say well I'm a do- I'm not a doctor well uh, really um, that's not a good reason not to think <laughs> and 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 especially if it's common sense that we're thinking about then um, it's okay if you're not a doctor if you're a parent you can come up with ideas that may be right on target because you're a mom, especially moms. I mean, and not to put dads down, but moms often have remarkable intuition. And that needs to be given a chance to be part of the discussion because it can make some shortcuts in this whole get and avoid thing that we were talking about. And, and, and by the way, I can attest that there have been times my wife has said things about my kids, our kids, that I've disagreed or been highly skeptical and only with the perspective of months or years that I come back and say, oh, yeah, she really, she just got it. And yeah. I'm pretty intuitive and very tuned in, especially to my own kids. And yes, I would have to agree with my own experience. You may be intuitive. And but me, not that. And me too, but we're, all, we're both guys. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and women... Uh, especially moms with respect to their kids, but women in general, I think, have sometimes a, a quicker link to uh, the source of good ideas and should be really listened to. I've had times in my life as a doctor when a person such as a mom has been going on and on and on and on and on and on, and I think, oh boy, I have to be really patient here, which fortunately was something I was given at birth as patience so i'm being patient and then all of a sudden she drops this pearl like oh my god what a good idea that is so um and that's a matter of of making sure that control is shared so individuality balance and control are are three of the uh, the main principles of the kind of medicine that we're talking about And, and so if you were to take you know, let's let's just say autoimmune, uh, or or for that matter, if if the if the commonalities are across the board in all chronic illness, so you start you look at the patient as an individual, you start testing, and or looking. In your case, you have a lot of experience, but for younger doctors uh, or doctors that don't practice that kind of medicine that want to, you know, what are the things generally speaking? Again, because we talked about you need. Uh, you needed adaptable protocols, I guess is probably the best term to add to it. Um, uh, what are the things that you look to do with patients? So autoimmune, I know in my case, as a patient of yours, you've looked at training my immune system on one and adding, and then looking at candida um, and fungus, generally speaking, which, as I think I mentioned when we first talked uh, seven, eight months ago, uh, at Penn, at CHOP in particular, the children's hospital there, 
that is a an autoimmune and in particular an IBD that is a massive focus for them now. Yeast, um, yeast, yeah. which you've been yeah. talking about for forty years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what what when when you take a chronic disease, what do you? Yeah, so we've established your view and and how you approach it. Now, what do you actually do with a patient? Well. I, first of all, I salute the top of my totem pole. I, I work on the ground level. And at the top of the, my totem pole is a man named Yehuda Schoenfeld, who is a professor of immunology at, uh, in Tel Aviv. And I think arguably one of the leading, arguably the leading immunologist in the world. He's, he's published over and over again large books writ with many authors uh, at uh, and he's recognized as one of the leading scientists in the field of immunology, which is all about autoimmune problems and allergies. Or, as I said before, the loss of immune tolerance when the immune system becomes cranky in the way it responds to something like egg you had for breakfast, or it responds to having in your own body something that it has taken uh, an attitude against, which makes you have create inflammation where that part of the body is, is, is affected. For example, if you lose hair in the sense of something called alopecia, where old clumps of hair fall out of your scalp and so you ended up bald all over or bald in, in difficult ways, in patchy ways, that is because you're making antibodies against the follicles, the little tubes from which the hair grows out. So these antibodies are made as if there's the, the hair follicle is some kind of enemy, like a germ, but it's because of a case of mistaken identity that the immune system is engaged in. So when you have these problems of your immune system, uh, having cases of mistaken identity where it thinks that ragweed pollen is just the worst thing in the world and is going to make your, your, get your lungs all inflamed to fight against ragweed pollen when it's really no big deal, or you're getting, getting your, your hair follicles to stop making hair because you think the hair follicles are your enemy, um, then how do you restore this precious quality to your immune system, which is called tolerance, and, and get it to be normal? Well, there, so as I approach people with chronic illness, the two top things on my list, and this is where what seems, as you just mentioned a moment ago, rather complicated way of thinking, it actually turns out at the end of the day to be extremely simple and disarmingly simple. And when, when, when lecturing to doctors about this, the simplicity of it is a little disarming. They think, well, it can't be that simple because you know, if it's that simple, why did I get to be a doctor? <laughs> it's supposed to be. And also, there's a certain aspect to teaching in medicine where complexity has a, has a kind of charm. Uh, doctors and medical people are sort of enchanted with complexity. Well, it makes them feel smarter. It makes smarter, them feel smarter. But it also creates job security, yes. whether that's conscious or subconscious. I, I agree. And one, one, one need not be too cynical about it. This is true of almost all. In, every in profession. Every profession. Okay. So... Um, and, and by the way, the one thing I want to say is I remember it's got to be 20 years ago now seeing Warren Buffett interviewed and he was talking and I didn't pick up on it either. But all of a sudden, uh, the, the gentleman interviewing him said, well, you said that was easy. 
And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I said it was simple. I never said it was easy. <laughs> yes. So, you well, know, and I think that's a big thing. Yeah. And, well, yes, and simple things are sometimes difficult for people because they say it can't be that simple. <laughs> they want to make it more complicated. Um, so, uh, so the loss of immune tolerance is... So, so what Yehuda Schoenfeld, in the first paragraph of one of his many books, uh, on page one, says, um, uh, most uh, referring to people in, in immunology and so on, most people would say uh, that until proven otherwise, chronic illness is, all chronic illness is autoimmune, meaning your body is taking exception to something in your own body and fighting it like it's the enemy because of a case of mistaken identity. He says, if you read the 52 chapters in this book written by experts in immunology and infectious disease from around the world, you come to the conclusion that all chronic illness is, after all, infectious. And then he says, including, uh, including autoimmunity. So he's saying, what he's saying is that bugs, infectious agents, viruses and bacteria and funguses, are the underlying uh, target for almost all of these inappropriate reactions in which the body uh, becomes uh, inappropriately sensitive to something in your own body or in the air you breathe or in the food you eat uh, that it takes to be uh, uh, an enemy. So it's, a, it's these cross-reactions between germs and other things that establishes this uh, this uh, loss of tolerance, uh, and then, so now, if if all chronic illness is autoimmune, he's talking about a lot of chronic illnesses that are not con- not even yet conventionally understood as autoimmune, like cardiovascular disease and some other things, Alzheimer's disease, although those are coming on board soon. But so he's saying, uh, until proven otherwise, all chronic illness is autoimmune, and and then he says, so then from that. You take the idea that um, it has to do with the loss of tolerance to things and and the part of the immune system, it's become intolerant, sensitive to things. And then if that's the case, then you say, well, how do you restore tolerance? Because tolerance is something we're supposed to have to begin with. We're born with tolerance to things. So restoration is a good word because it so, sounds so, so healthy. I mean, it is healthy. If you restore something, that's good. And so restoration of immune tolerance, in my experience of 50 years of doing what I do, and certainly since 1977 when I met my mentor, uh, Orion Truss, about yeast things, has to do with two things that should be on the list of things to consider. And again, this is a matter of, at first, every consideration is a test rather than a treatment until you get it sorted out. So first thing you think, well, maybe this person, because of antibiotics in the food supply or antibiotics that they've taken, have gotten too many yeast kind of fungus growing in their intestinal tract uh, and other parts of their body, but mostly the intestinal tract. And, And the immune system is intolerant to that and fights back. Uh, and the um, the presence of too many of these germs, which is 
too many is defined differently in different people. So it's, it's not entirely quantitative. There's some people where a little bit of yeast really causes a lot of trouble, and other people where you can have overwhelming amounts of yeast, and they're really they're itchy, but they're not really super sick with it. So then that means that for many people, the first test can for this, I mean, there are blood and, and stool tests that can be done, but for many people, the, the first test could be, well, why don't you try taking something to get rid of yeast and see what happens? And, uh, and so now that becomes, as I say, a test, but then if something happens, uh, then you know you're on the right track and then you exploit it further. And then the other thing is to take from what we've learned from the African experience or the experience with people living the old-fashioned way, if you restore to people some of the um, organisms that live in the, in the digestive tract of people living the old-fashioned way, then it, it miraculously restores tolerance to people. And, um, and this is called helminthic therapy. Helminth is the fancy word for worms. And I know the very concept of worms is something that um, freaks people out. But after all, our children in, in school pick, pick up pinworms from the other children, and it's a pain in the you-know-what, or at least a, an itch in the you-know-what. Uh, but you can take a pinworm medicine and get rid of it. Those are not the ones I'm advocating, but they do uh, explain to people that, look, just the idea of a worm doesn't mean it's, it's, it's lethal or dangerous necessarily. Certainly there are some kinds of worms that are dangerous. But as I said, in Africa that I where I was with, for two years, I see hundreds and thousands of very healthy people, and all of them had different kind of worms in them. So uh, it's not as bad as your as the whole uh, very concept um, makes it sound. But it, it is difficult in the marketing department because it, if you're if the idea if you're going to market something that people would go for, I'm sure the advertising agency would not want you to call it a worm, <laughs> but. As it happens, the, the organisms that we're talking about are uh, at least kindred to various worms. And, and these, when a few of them are put into the digestive system of human beings, even worms that are borrowed from other species that have worms, um, one species that has worms that are very congenial to the, uh, the human being is pigs. Pigs and people have a lot of things in common. Um, personalities in some cases, but certainly things about their immune system and their and their digestive systems. And um, just for example, uh, uh, there are lots of animals whose poops don't smell that bad, but pigs' poop and human poops both smell really bad. So there are these commonalities, and not just in personality, but other things as well. So a few years ago, um, a guy named Joel Weinstock, a professor of gastroenterology at the University of Iowa, noticing that um, that the pig farmers of Iowa, uh, there's more pigs in Iowa than any place in the world, I think. Um, the pigs and pig farmers in Africa, in uh, Iowa, don't have autoimmune problems and allergies. How could that be? Well, it's because they raise pigs, and pigs have pig poops, and in the pig poops are things called um, TSO, T for Trichurus, which is a name for, for, for a certain kind of worm. Uh, we call it a whipworm in, in, in 
in regular parlance, a whipworm, the pig whipworm, the eggs from those pig whipworms, he got them, he had a research project to take a whole bunch of people with, who were sick with ulcerative colitis, and, um, and they had s- severe ulcerative colitis, so that if somebody offered them to even swallow something that they might not find appetizing, um, they would go for it because the op- the option was to have a colostomy, a hole made in your tummy to poop out of, which is not not a very good proposition. So he he gave uh, he got people the whipworm eggs from the pigs, and sure enough, about half of them were cured, just like that. Now, this was scientifically done, and well, you know, all top-notch science and ethics and all that. There's no doubt about it that the pig whipworm eggs helped and helped tremendously in about half the people. Well, half's pretty good, pretty good odds in this game. So he published that, and now he's a professor in Boston. <laughs> Went from Iowa to, to Boston. And, um, and, and, and brilliant, and he's still, um, when he lectures, he says, well now, to, to my colleagues, he says, well now, you know, don't try this in your practice. We're still working on the research. Well, this has been out there for more than 10 years. And, and soon, I, and when, when he published this, I thought, well, this is really cool. But where am I going to get pig whipworm eggs to give to my patients? Uh, but it turns out that within a year or so of that, um, you could get them on the on the internet, and you can order them, and um, and they they work dramatically well. And so then, um, so that becomes an option for restoration of immune tolerance, not just for for uh, ulcerative colitis, but for any autoimmune or allergic problem and I had a lot of experience with it and it really the the hit rate in the population of people I was taking care of was very very high way above 50 50 and there's really no risk to it that's the good thing if you if you look at medical decisions risk is a big option and I mean a big consideration I, I there are five considerations I call them the brocks b-r-o-c-s b is for benefit r is for risk O is for the odds, that is the probability that any treatment you're proposing will work. Uh, C is for cost, and S is for the stakes. Now, a lot of people make decisions based on the odds, which makes good sense. But if the stakes are really high and the risk is zero, hey, even if the chances are one in a hundred and it doesn't cost that much, you still go for it just to try it. And when their odds are 50-50, geez, that's a bargain. So with, with this kind of treatment, with the, these TSOs, um, then we're talking about odds that are, are very good, risk that is basically zero, which you don't get that, you know. Look at the advertisements on TV these days in the evening. If you watch TV in the evening, and you see all of these ads for Humira and all these other things, these immune-suppressing drugs. It's terrifying stuff that they put up there. And the nice lady is smiling as she recites these, or the, the, the voice behind her recites yeah. these horrendous things that could happen. Well, what I'm talking about, there's none of that. So it's a pretty big bargain in terms of that. So after doing that for a number of years and being very, very impressed by the results you get with the TSO, 
then I was lecturing at a meeting, and uh, one of the other lecturers was William Parker, from a professor of surgery at Duke University, who's a researcher in this general area. Well, in many areas, he's a, one of these people who's good at everything and just a lovely person. And, um, and we talked about our mutual interests and became friends over dinner after we each gave a talk. And, um, and he said he had a thing up his sleeve that was percolating and thought it would be maybe just as good and certainly less expensive than the TSO and something worth trying. And after a year or two, we were in communication, and he said, well, I've got it. And I said, well, I'm coming down to Duke <laughs> tomorrow. I went down there and learned how to do it, so now I raise these little uh, critters uh, we call little dudes or primobiotics. But you're like a probiotic. This is... This is not very much different from the probiotics you buy at the store. They're germs that go live in your digestive tract that help with your immune system in this case, but these things are quite powerful. So, so those, are the, those are the ideas on the one side is get rid of yeast, and the other side is put in these HDCs, as they're called. And, and the HTCs are, as you, I think you referred to, I'm not sure today, but all in past conversations is a form of immunotherapy, which is what you're saying. You're restoring tolerance is a form of immunotherapy. That's right. It's immunotherapy. But most times when people talk about immunotherapy is to suppress the immune system. This time we're talking about helping the immune system do what it's supposed to do, which is to tolerate just about everything that goes by and then maintain at the same time its, its vigilance for really bad things that you don't want to get, like certain kinds of germs and, um, and so on. But do these, these little dudes, as you refer to them, do they live inside the body? Or how long are they typically, do you think they're in the body? Or? We, 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 we send them out in, in, in ice, with ice packs, and they arrive fresh, and there may be... Uh, one, two, three, five, or ten, or fifteen, or twenty of them in the little salt water thing on the side there, and the little creature which we get out from under the microscope is very cute. It's reassuring when things are cute, because there are certain things in nature that look pretty scary. I take them, as you know. Yes. And I, I, I'm not sure that I, uh, and I've had no. It's been four or five months now, and I've yeah. had no adverse anything. In fact, help from it, but. I'm not sure I want to look at what they look like. Oh, they're really, they're very cute. Uh, and you'd be reassured if uh, next time you're out, I'll show you. But they, uh, they're very cute and, and they, um, and they last for maybe, um, uh, uh, a week or so. And then they really want to be inside a rat. And then when they get down there and they're inside you for a week or so, one of them turns to the other and says, you know, this doesn't smell like a rat here. And the other one said, yeah, it doesn't look like a rat. And the other one said, it doesn't taste like a rat. I don't think this is a rat here. Let's get out of here. So they get, they get out of there. But in the meantime, they've started a conversation with their immune system. And they tell the immune system to be more tolerant. And um, so it's not that they go down there and kill things or, you know, you can't picture it in terms of warfare. It's, it's like they negotiate a settlement with the immune system. They're like, look, we're here. We guys like us have been living inside human beings since the beginning of time, and our presence has always been part of maintaining tolerance with you, the immune system, uh, and uh, or maintaining tolerance in the immune system. And um, now we're back again. So, so 
just be, be, be more tolerant. And the immune system is, becomes more tolerant and stops. And the, the results from this, well, in 50 years of being a doctor, no doubt about it that this is the best thing I've ever learned. It is just breathtaking. And um, the, the stories that I get back from patients who have very, very serious problems like autism and all kinds of autoimmune problems are just, just the best thing. So of the, when, when in terms of approaching people with chronic illness, um, if it's a question of choosing among 50 different drugs, it's, that's kind of mind-boggling. But if it's a question of just trying to begin with, with making sure they don't have some kind of deficiencies, and then, um, and then just checking out these two big items, the the yeast item and the the, the restoration of immune tolerance by putting in these little uh, TSOs or, or HDCs, and some people uh, take uh, worms that are you know belong in human beings called hookworms, and this is not FDA approved, or it's, but it's, there's a big underground or out there where you can get them. And people, um, and there's the, the book to read about this is called the um, An Epidemic of Absence. Uh, this is a really important book, um, and um, the, the the last name of the author is Valasquez Manhoff, uh, V a l e s q u e z hyphen m a n h o f f, and uh, and it's a wonderful book which introduces this whole concept that I've been talking about and makes my job of explaining it much easier because it's a whole book and gives you the whole lowdown. And he talks about the guy who was had serious allergic problems for years and years, and he went off and got some hookworms to crawl into his foot. That's how the hookworms get in to infect people. They crawl through your skin. Then they travel in your body and come up to your lungs, and then they come out of your lungs into your breathing apparatus and then you swallow them and they go into your intestine and they set up shop there. Now hookworms in you know in, in the parts of the world where I spent time in India and Nepal and 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 Africa, hookworm disease is quite a burden because the people keep walking barefoot and people poop on the ground and so there's poops on the ground and they step in the poops even if you don't see it as a, you know, what's sitting on the ground. Um, and then, it, so you keep getting a bigger and bigger burden of these little hookworms. And then they can really tear you down and make sure, drags you down to have all these un, unwelcome guests. But if you have only five or 10 of them, first of all, you're not walking, you're not in your neighborhood where you live if you're listening to this recording. <laughs> you're not likely to be stepping in poops of your neighbors. So you're not, and even if you poop on the ground, it's very unlikely that one of your neighbors will step in your poops. So, so this is, uh, if, so if you install just a few hookworms in your body, now you have, you don't have to keep taking them, now you have your own pet hookworms. You may, after a few, few months or years, you may have to reinstall them. But this uh, also is a form of this kind of treatment, which is, um, no doubt about it, it works. Now, now how long... Now, when when will there ever be a pharmaceutical company that wants to market these things? Never. So who's ever going to pay to get all the studies done to prove to the FDA that this is safe and effective? Never. But there's an underground that is doing this, and I think 
I think it's perfectly clear that a small number of hookworms is good for you, and a lot of them are, you know, if you're walking barefoot on poops all your life, then that's not good. But but these are all these are all things that are part of the same impulse of restoration of something to the human population that is part of our our, our heritage as as an, as an as a living creature. We've always had these kinds of germs living in our body some of which are not good for us and some of them are you know dangerous but these ones that i've just mentioned they're not dangerous and they are they are absolutely miraculous they don't work for everybody i have patients in whom i think boy um this uh, this would be uh, a great deal for them because they have a typical allergic problem and it doesn't work but more than 50% of the time and it's for every kind of thing like I have a patient, the, the husband of one of my patients that I've known for years and years and years. He's a, a very successful businessman, and um, and he's uh, also a very serious golfer. I had dinner with some golfers the other night, and I tell you, they're really, they really, <laughs> they're very committed, <laughs> and, and uh, they were my classmates from Exeter. They were really very into golf. Um, well, now, so this guy is into golf, but he and he's about sixty years old. He goes into tournaments and he wins the tournaments. I mean, he's that kind of a serious golfer. And his golf score went from seventy up to eighty when his diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis came across. Now, Hashimoto is just a Japanese word for somebody who figured this out, but it's an autoimmune inflammation of your thyroid gland. It's the same thing as rheumatoid arthritis or ulcerative colitis, but it's in your thyroid gland. So. He had to take thyroid medicine, but his golf score went from 70 to 80. Well, my God, that was more, that was worse for him than having his blood count fall because it was, it represented that he was handy, he was handicapped in his handicap. He was, he was really sick in the golfy way. And I put him on the HDCs and within a couple of months, I was talking to his wife on the phone. I said, hey, how's he doing? Oh, his golf score is down to 70, as happy as he can be, and his thyroid antibodies have gone away, and he's fine. So that's, you know, that's the kind of story that, simple, simple. Okay, well, I want to thank you. It's another, I, I, I know from your books and, and your other interviews online, which I will provide links to on the website uh, and the show notes, but uh, there's, yeah, you have countless stories like this it's not like you've just a few uh i think that i think it's endless and so you know, hopefully we'll do some more interviews in the future i know we'll be talking as a patient i know that i've taken these hdcs and they have helped me uh and i know that uh, you know, the general protocol that you have me on which is what we've discussed uh, and we do adapt it and we are changing it and playing with it uh, to make sure that i get to the peak of health because the goal is the peak of health yes and and the one thing I've loved about following you over the years and now knowing you really just in the last year is that you don't settle until the person is healed. And you have this endless curiosity and you, and an ability to listen to the body, to the patient, to the close ones to them, anyone who knows to take in the information. And so my goal over time, especially with this whole podcast series, is to find people like you who know how to heal people or help them heal themselves, I should say. Right. Enable them, help them to heal themselves. Exactly. 
and work with them until they do so. And in this endless curiosity and, and this humility that you have. So I thank you for taking the time. Well, it's, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.